0: This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. Every day we're bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance, plus technology, politics, so much going on in the world of politics, economics, and it's all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. New York City's mayor getting ready uh, to, looks like, a uh, halt indoor dining. He says it's just a matter of time. We also have U.S. COVID hospitalizations near 80,000 as records are toppled daily. And then we also had on the flip side, Moderna vaccine production. It's gearing up that according to its partner And Oxford, a study confirming its AstraZeneca COVID uh, shot response in elderly specifically. There's been a lot of the kind of yin and yang when it comes to COVID-19 news this week. Let's talk about it. Dr. Daniel Salman is director of the Institute for Vaccine Safety and Professor. Professor of International Health at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. Dr. Salman joins us on the phone from Baltimore. Good afternoon. Nice to have you here. All
1: right, good afternoon. Thanks for having me.
0: So tell me a little bit about when you look at the headlines. I do feel like it's, you know, a step forward, a couple steps back when it comes to progress on a vaccine, but we know that's still going to take a while. And then, of course, we continue to see the numbers going up here in the United States and really globally. How would you assess the situation at this point?
1: Well, from an issue of COVID disease, I mean, we're seeing huge amounts of disease. And as you've described in your preamble, there's, you know, increases in hospitalization. It's all really concerning. And uh, it's likely to get worse before it gets better. You know the vaccine side well it seems to be good news but there are press releases this is based on so very very few people have seen the data i haven't seen the data and the press releases sound great but we really need to see the data we need to see how effective it is among whom and what exactly is effective in is it preventing any disease is it preventing serious disease does the effectiveness vary by population does it prevent transmission of disease And presumably, the safety profile looks good if they wouldn't or they wouldn't have put out a press release. But so we really need to see the data. I mean, this is these are press releases.
0: Yeah, well, Um, I think that is like a brilliant point because listen, they are most of them publicly held companies. I think all of them are publicly held companies, and so they can't certainly make statements that might financially alter what investors see, or you know, if they promise too much, so on and so forth. Right? There's rules when it comes to putting this stuff out. But as you say. Data is data. There's a lot of data that we are still, we've collected, but still need to collect when it comes to COVID-19, its impact on different populations, but also how you treat different populations and how those treatments, you know, impact different populations.
1: Yeah, so I think that's all true. And likewise, there's a lot of data on these vaccines that we haven't seen I mean, when we evaluate a vaccine, it's not based on press releases. Yeah. So the next step is that FDA has an advisory committee called VerPAC, the Vaccines and Related Biologic Product Advisory Committee. And these data are going to go in front of VRPAC, and You're going to have external independent scientists that are really going to carefully review the data and then make a recommendation to FDA. And those meetings are open. They're available to the public. And that's a really important step because that's, an opportunity for the scientific and the clinical community to see the data and to have independent experts weigh in on it mm-hmm. and it's also a chance for the public to see how this all works yeah and base their views not on things they read on the internet or or press releases but by having scientific rigor that's transparent yeah, we- um, After.
0: No, I was going to say, you know, and I've said this a couple of times on our air that we, you know, as a public are, are seeing how this, pro- you know, normally, yeah, yeah, we hear about a drug and it's approved and it's years of, you know, testing and we don't really pay as much attention, right, until a doctor says, here, here's a prescription for XYZ. But we are really learning and seeing this process. I want to dig a little bit deeper. I mean, in terms of the data specifically, what is it that you're going to be looking for?
1: Well, I'm going to be looking at what outcomes were examined and what the effect, efficacy was for those outcomes. So I'm interested in, for example, did it prevent disease altogether um, or did it prevent clinical disease? And does What's it the difference people? between that?
0: What's the difference?
1: Well, we know with COVID that lots of people have symptom, don't have symptoms but have disease, okay. right? And that's why the mask recommendation changed. Um, many infectious diseases, you're not infectious to other people until you have symptoms. So initially, the recommendations were if you don't feel good, stay at home, which makes a lot of sense. But then, when we discovered you have people that have disease and transmit disease, but they don't have any symptoms, that's when the mass recommendation came in. Because if staying at home when you feel sick isn't enough. And uh, so whether or not the vaccine prevents subclinical disease is important. Um, does it prevent more serious disease? And if so, maybe maybe even more so than it prevents disease. I mean, they're talking 90 or 90% effectiveness. That's right. very good. But there are des- vaccines like for the flu, where it's moderately effective in preventing influenza, but it's even better at preventing serious disease. That's important. Well, and how long does that protection last? That's a really important question. I agree. We're not going to know. For, we're not going to know for a while.
0: I actually caught so, up with the with the Moderna CEO earlier today for uh, a Bloomberg panel and Bloomberg event, and you know he did point out that he said what was significant about their developments was that it was for you know kind of your more serious cases of COVID.
1: Yeah, so I mean, that's important. That's helpful. Yeah. My preference would be a vaccine that prevents all disease yeah. and therefore prevents any transmission of disease, and you get one or two shots and it lasts forever. Um, that's a very high standard, and it's doubtful any vaccine for COVID will do all of
0: that. Dr. Salmon, you know. You you know about, obviously, vaccine development, you understand distribution, you understand safety. The process that we're happening, even though it's happening much more quickly, do you feel comfortable about it? Do you have confidence in it?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And I'm really glad you're asking it because I do. And I think there's a lot of misnomer out there because it's called Operation Warp Speed and it's happening so quickly that that somehow safety is being cut short. And that's not the case. These are very large clinical trials. And as long as the process continues using our normal mechanisms and having external review, I'm very comfortable with the process, and it's it's important that people understand this.
0: And I think what's also important, you started talking about it um, before uh, before the break. You talked about you know when you evaluate a vaccine, you go you know it's not on the press releases that there will be independent scientists, right, who are going to review this. They will ultimately make recommendations. It's not just the company data, correct? It's not just government officials. I mean, there are outside independent, right?
1: Yeah, I'm sorry you cut out for a second. I thought you you paused. Okay. Um it's a really important point and we talked about the Virpack and FDA's advisory committee, but CDC has an advisory committee too that has a role. Once FDA gives approval for use, um it then goes to the CDC and they turn to their advisory committee on immunization practice and they look at all the data and they make recommendations for who should get the vaccine. If anybody is contraindicated and they shouldn't get it, and how many doses and what, what spacing and where the prioritization is, who should get it first. And all of that, again, is done by independent scientists, and it's done with transparency. Those meetings are open to the public. Now, these advisory committees don't make the decision. They make recommendations, mm-hmm. and it's up to the agencies, the FDA or the CDC, to accept those decisions, which they usually do. So this is a process that's been around for a long time, and it has a long track history of working well and making sure that vaccines that are used widely are very safe and at least reasonably effective, that the benefits outweigh the risk for those populations that are recommended. So you're asking me if I'm comfortable. I'm saying I am, as long yeah. as it goes through this process, which it is. And the public needs to see this. The public needs to see that these are decisions that are based on evidence and science and reviewed by external experts.
0: To be fair, and I just, because you understand this a whole lot more than I do, um, the the process has gone from a decade to essentially a year, right, before, you know, give or take a few months or so, before it kind of rolls out to everyone. What is, though, the risk in that you don't have maybe 10 years of study, or you don't have years after someone's been given a vaccine to kind of track what the longer term impact is? Do we need to be at least a little cautious about something like that?
1: Well, I think we need to be very cautious about everything. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the ways that this has been been sped up doesn't cause any concern scientifically. We did very large studies of multiple products at the same time, and we put tremendous resources into recruiting people for those studies. So the fact that that's done faster, as long as it's done well, is fine. One of the biggest ways that we've saved time is that the vaccine has been manufactured prior to the results of the phase three studies. That is a big financial risk. Normally, you see the results of phase three studies, and if it looks good, you build man- manufacturing capacity. In this case, that capacity was built earlier. So there's financial risk there, but there's mm-hmm. not risk of there being a problem. If the vaccine turns out to be not suitable for use, then you've wasted all that money, but you haven't hurt anybody. So these these processes, I think, are very solid. Um, one of the questions you asked was, well, what about something that has long-term safety problem. And, you know, right now the standard is that people have to have been studied for at least 60 days. And most adverse reactions that happen after a vaccine happen in the first 60 days. But there is some possibility if it's something that took six months to develop, well, you're not going to find that out until you wait. So at the end, you have to balance risks Mm. and benefits and known risks and known benefits. And we're, as you've described, in a pandemic situation where Disease is increasing quickly, the hospitalizations are increasing, and pretty soon the deaths are going to start increasing. Our economy has had major hits, so you have to, you know, make a decision based on the best available evidence. What matters is that the science is driving the decisions, that it's free from politics, right? it's free from other factors, that this is evidence-based decisions.
0: We're going to leave it on that note because that's a great way to wrap it up. Dr. Salmon, thank you so much. Greatly appreciated. Dr. Daniel Salman, Director of the Institute for Vaccine Safety and Professor of International Health at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health.
1: This is Bloomberg Business Week. With Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio.
0: Well, this is among our most read stories, uh, and it's one reported for Bloomberg Business Week. It's about something that we were all trying to get back in the spring. We're talking about Lysol, and how there seems to be more than ever. But guess what? It's still not enough for the U.S. So, let's get into it with Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber. He's on the Access Line from Brooklyn. Also with us, Bloomberg News team leader for U.S. healthcare. He wrote it, Drew Armstrong. He's on the phone in New York City. Uh, Joel, I got to tell you, back in the spring, I could not get like. I saw for nothing.
2: Yeah, you weren't alone. I don't <laughs> think anybody else could. And when you could, when you did see it, you, you you know, immediately hoarded it. It That's was right. one of the great hoarding items. Um, and, you know, back then there were a couple stories like that, that I was really interested in. And, you know, one was uh, 3M, you know, how do you make, right. how do you make more in 95 masks yesterday? And we did that one as a cover story. And the Lysol one, just stuck with me because I was like, boy, I'm really curious how you make more Lysol. (laughs) And Drew Armstrong actually happened to have that same kind of urge and came back with a fully realized story. That is one of my favorites from sort of pandemic times. Drew, how do you make more Lysol? So, yeah, I I started asking that question
3: um, earlier this year, you know, for exactly the same reason you guys did, because I couldn't find it anywhere. And, you know, this company that makes it, um, Reckett, um, Ben Benkeiser, it's a London company. They're a big consumer conglomerate. And one of the things you find from um, reading about this is that, you know, they're this massive company with huge resources, but, you know, they have this relatively thin, delicate supply chain that's stretched all over the U.S. and all over the world. And when the pandemic really, you know, did two things. One, just put their demand through the roof for this product, but two, you know, just absolutely upset all of the kind of global trade and even the U.S. trade and, you know, all the kind of things that you need to make stuff in a factory in the world that we live in, it, it really jumbled their world. And so they were, they were great about opening the door and telling us, you know, how they did everything from, like, flying 747s full of chemicals from Europe to the U.S. so that they could make more wipes and Lysol spray. Um, at one point, they were starting to run out of ethanol, uh, which is one of the main ingredients in Lysol. So it happened that Americans weren't driving as much because they were all staying home and ethanol is a important gasoline additive. So they retooled a ethanol plant in Nebraska that makes ethanol for gasoline and just shipped train cars with these, you know, 30,000 gallon tanks of ethanol to their factory in New Jersey. It's it just fascinating to hear about all the things that they did in order to, well. you know, keep this stuff flowing and still has not been enough.
0: This is one of those stories, man, you know, you could just sit down and talk about for a long time because it's just interesting facets, something we take for granted, right? But you really dug into kind of the nuts and bolts of it. Tell us, though, and I have to say on our planning call this morning, we were all getting into it. Tell us about Mr. Lysol and Flushing Meadows.
3: Sure. So uh, there's a guy at uh, at, at Reckitt called Joe Rubino. He has been, he has worked on Lysol for 35 some years through its previous owners. He's a microbiologist. Um. You know, there's a there's a little red banner on the Lysol can mm-hmm. that says kills 99.9 percent of germs, and you know that's that's kind of thing is everyone If you look at the Clorox, if you look at Purell, everybody makes the same claim, but they were actually the first people to do the research to show that. And one of the things that they did um, in, in the early days of this product, back in the um, in the very early, uh, sorry, not in the early days of the product, but back in kind of his early on in his career in the early 90s, they would do stuff like. Coat a toy ball with uh, a harmless uh, virus and put it into a daycare, and then go around swabbing everything to figure out, you know, where did this virus go? Um, they did the same thing in hotel rooms with people who had colds. They really tried to understand the microbiology aspects of what their products could kill. And one of the things that they studied was, you know, just how, mu- you know, if you have basically a plate full of, you know, germs or microbes, you know, viruses or bacteria, how much does it actually kill? And, you know, he he was talking to me uh, as he was explaining this. In one of many conversations we had. He said, "Well, we had a you know three log or a four log or even a five log reduction, and what that actually means is ninety nine point you know nine 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 percent." Um, the marketing folks took a look at that and they said, people love the idea of 99.9%. We've got to put this on the can. Um, and that's kind of the history of where that number comes from in disinfecting. Uh, it, it, they were the first to make it. Now everybody, everybody does. It actually does a lot more than that, but you know, there is a tremendous amount of research, both scientific and consumer that goes on behind these products um, to figure it out. Uh, you mentioned Flushing Meadows, it's my <laughs> favorite place in this whole story. They Lysol makes a toilet bowl cleaner. And... Um, You know, if you make a toilet bowl cleaner, you're always changing and tweaking your product. You're introducing new, you know, formulations, things like that. You have to test it. And if you sell your toilet bowl cleaner around the world, you have to test it in toilets around the world.
0: Makes sense. So they have
3: a room. It's room A154 in Montvale, New Jersey. And there's 104 (laughs) toilets brought in from around the world. There's a U.K. row. There's a European Union row. There's an American row of toilets. There's an Indian row of toilets. And they have a back room where they actually replicate the water conditions uh, from around the world to match those places and little robotic arms that flush each toilet on kind of the, you know, typical home schedule of toilet use for, say, you know, the the people in the United Kingdom. And you'll be standing in this room and all of a sudden you'll hear 16 toilets, you know, from France all flush at once. That is how you test toilet bowl cleaner. It's really, um, it was a fascinating, fascinating place to be.
2: And, and also probably the best photograph we published all year, <laughs> yes. just to see <laughs> you know down. a testing a testing center of, of, of toilets. Drew, I want to bring it back to the flagship product, though you You mentioned um, ethanol being one of the main ingredients. How, what are the ingredients that go into lysol and and just like how does that whole manufacturing side really come together? because they're producing upwards of a million cans a day at this point, right?
3: Yeah, so they have a plant in a suburb area of New Jersey. They actually asked me not to say where it is because demand has been so crazy. that They were worried that people would start showing up outside the plant. They don't really have a lot of security there or anything like that, and they don't want to have to hire it. Um, but they, you know, there is a rail. There's a rail siding that runs up to the plant, and these rail cars that I mentioned—they're thirty thousand gallon, giant black, hulking rail cars. They drop off one hundred and twenty to one hundred and fifty. Sorry, I think 90,000 to 120,000 gallons of ethanol a day. Ethanol is a solvent. If what it does with a virus like COVID, like the coronavirus, is that essentially the coronavirus is a little bit of genetic material in a lipid wrapper or lipid skin. Ethanol gets in there, it essentially tears the lipids apart, and it renders it inert. Um, there's another chemical uh, called a quat, a quaternary aluminum salt, I believe. Right, right. That's um, another key component. And then after I've kind of sent, they put all this stuff together. They call it the juice. They manufacture it in you know yeah, multi-tens yeah. of thousand-gallon tank, and it goes into the cans and A little bit of butane as a propellant and on to your store.
0: It's pretty amazing. I've got to say that we were waiting weeks uh, recently for some Lysol wipes. And when they came in, it was like celebration at our house. (laughs) It was pretty remarkable. Um, Drew, only like you can do. It's a great story. um, And everybody should check it out. I'll put it out on Twitter. Drew Armstrong, team leader for U.S. Healthcare at Bloomberg News, along with Jill Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week. Check out the new issue of Business Week online on newsstands and, of course, on the Bloomberg.
1: This is Bloomberg Business Week. With Carol Masser. From Bloomberg Radio.
0: There is one uh, company and stock that we wanted to bring to your attention, especially as we get ready for the holiday shopping season just around the corner. Macy's had quite a swing today. It was down 10% at its lows, up almost 3% at its highs. Right now, it's up about 2% in the trade, and that's after the company reported its latest uh, quarterly results. Let's get into it with Bloomberg Intelligence Senior U.S. Retail Analyst Poonam Goyal. She is with us on the phone in New Jersey. Poonam, so nice to have you here. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Carol. Well, good to have you here. Um, how's Macy's doing? I can't tell yeah, from Macy's, the trade today because it was all over the map.
4: It was. You know, I think I think Macy's, the story's kind of the same with everyone else that has reported so far, where you're seeing a marked improvement from where we were in March and April. So you're seeing a progression where comps have gotten better, stores have opened, but they're still down. That said, digital is on fire And, and we see this across the board, not only at Macy's, where digital sales are now representing roughly 40% of total sales. And that's probably going to accelerate over the holidays as stores can't handle the higher capacity and the viruses, uh, the cases are actually rising. So we think digital is where the focus is right now, Mm. but Macy's is doing Kind of everything right, really, at the moment. I I would say to get customers to shop with it. Go figure.
0: Uh, And the CEO did say that the digital business is growing at quote an aggressive rate. So listen, you and I have talked so much about the retail sector, you know, Macy specifically. It's just one of those iconic brands, right? They've just been around forever. But we also know retail is going through disruption, innovation, just you know, like a lot of other industries. But you know, we've been overstored, over mauled. Macy's, as you said, is doing everything right. So what is the retailer that they ultimately need to be to survive for another, how how many years have they been around? Is it 100 years? I don't know. It's over 100. I think it's over 160 now. Yeah. Okay. So can they be around for the next century? And what do they need to do to kind of to to do that?
4: Sure. I think department stores in general need to look at their fleet again. We've already Mm -hmm. seen the big push on digital and really the the disruption that we were expecting from digital, meaning going from 20% to 40% penetration, happened in a matter of six months already. So that's happening, and we think it's here to stay. We think, you know, higher digital penetration rates will persist even past the pandemic, and retailers could reach equilibrium, especially these department stores where a large portion of their sales will come from the online platform. So, what does this mean for stores? It means that they can have these large, oversized, uh, you know, bigger stores. Macy's stores average over a hundred thousand square feet. Huge. Seats, and they're huge, and there's so much in there. So, consumers are now looking for you know spaces where they can go quickly in and out of. They don't want to have to run from one department to another and kind of shop the way their grandparents shopped, if you would say. Um, So they need to work on that. And they are, they've made small steps. You know, they have their market at Macy's stores where they're rolling out a new small store format. But at the end of the day, as that accelerates, they need to still think about their bigger boxes and downsize
0: them. So let me just, you know, I'm going to go back to digital sales because I'm just kind of looking through the the numbers and forgive me. I know we kind of covered a little bit of this, but I mean, digital sales, they were up 27% versus the same quarter last year. But, The second quarter, they were up 53% year over year. Is that a problem? No, not
4: at all, because um, in the second quarter, stores were closed, so there was no other outlet to go Okay. Okay. Right, but if you look at the total sales, total sales progression has actually moderated as the year has progressed. So overall it's an encouraging sign.
0: So help me out because I like shopping digitally and I will definitely go, I'll try new places, I'll go to definitely the places I know. What does Macy's need to do? Who is their customer and how do they keep them engaged on a digital platform?
4: Yeah, their customer is everyone, so it's all demographics, but where they're gravitating towards is a younger millennial Gen Z customer and you know traditionally they've had a much harder time attracting that customer but over the past six months it seems that they've made a lot of progress and part of that progress came through their digital efforts that they've stepped up so the rollout of curbside has really boosted their image um, to that millennial customer that probably doesn't want to go into a store but hey if you want things within the next day or even the same day you can just drive up and pick it up so that's been a huge plus for the retailer Um, not just Macy's, but even Kohl's. In fact, Kohl's said a third of their digital demand was picked up at the, um, a third of their pickup demand was picked up at the curb. So pretty promising.
0: My kind of shopping, I gotta say. (laughs) Get me out of the stores. (laughs) Hey, one thing I wanna ask you, we think of Macy's, we think of the Macy's brand, but Macy's is Bloomingdale's, they are Blue Mercury and they're Macy's. Where's the the most growth? Blue Mercury, I mean, that's cosmetics and stuff that's got usually really high margins. So I just wonder where's the growth Where's you know kind of the future potential for them among those brands?
4: Yeah, I think I think the highest growth would be within Blue Mercury and yeah. Backstage, um, which is their off-price um, banner. Then, then it would follow Bloomingdale's and then Macy's. Macy's is their largest and it's you know the biggest brand
0: that they have, and also the one that needs the most work. Yeah, interesting. But I mean, it's I feel like that whole Blue Mercury, Sephora, that is a space that just continues to explode. Just got about thirty seconds here.
4: Yeah, absolutely. As you said before, you know, personal care, beauty is where people are focused. It's something that they'll always continue to replenish every buy. It's the traffic driver aspect of a department store. And it has the highest margins, close to 70% 80%, if not
0: more. Oh, my God, yeah. i got to say, to be honest, that's kind of what I have spent money on while I've been working from home <laughs> is <laughs> stuff like that. Poonam, nice to hear your voice. Take care. Likewise. Poonam Goyal. She's Senior U.S. Retail Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence.
3: I'm driving my car.
1: the drive to the close. That the music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio.
0: It is time for the drive to the close on this Thursday. I'm Carol Master in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio, and delighted to have back with us Vinny Catalano, chief market strategist at Stuyvesit Capital Management, also global investment strategist at Defoe Redmount. He joins us once again on the phone in New Jersey. So, Vinny, uh, how are you? I'm well. How are you, Carol? I'm, I'm doing well. Um, also just kind of watching the virus numbers, getting a little nervous about what it means for my beloved city of New York City and the surrounding area. Um, how do you see it? How does it impact ultimately uh, what's going to happen in our economy once again, what it means for small businesses, what it smalls for Americans, what it means for Americans and what it means ultimately for our economy?
5: Well, that's not too much, okay.
0: <laughs> well, it's <laughs> but, but, all connected, though, right, Vinny? I mean, exactly. you, it, it really, you know, you can't talk about COVID without, or you can't talk about the economy without talking about COVID. You can't really talk about Wall Street about sure. without talking about the virus, although there is this incredible disconnect between Main Street and Wall Street.
5: Well, absolutely. And small businesses, you mentioned a moment ago, uh, small businesses clearly have a problem. You, you cannot run... Most small businesses at 80, 90 percent capacity. You can't have uh, restaurants uh, half full. You can't have bubbles outside of restaurants and so on and so forth. Bars, they can't do it. Uh, colleges cannot continue on uh, in the manner that they have. So, you know, the vaccine could not come along quickly enough. But between now and then, obviously, we need some government support and government help. And it would be nice if... uh the left hand knew what the right hand was doing, and they kind of cooperated down in Washington. We could we could definitely use that. As far as the stock market is concerned, um, that's something where you know it, it operates on a, on a completely different level. Um, one of the elements about the stock market that I think many people don't fully appreciate is the fact that the stock market has one characteristic that a lot of other markets do not have, and that's liquidity. Mm -hmm. You can get in, you can get out, and you can do it very easily. And in an institutionally dominated market, which the stock market is, there is this, you know, macho approach to, you know, a driver mentality coming down the road and, you know, playing a game of chicken and, well, I can get out quicker than the other guy can, that kind of thing, and why not? Why not? So that's kind of what's going on uh, in large part. Um, and to a large extent, that, that helps explain a lot of the stock market behavior, which goes beyond your more traditional way of looking at it.
0: Okay. So having said that, kind of back <laughs> no, that, at back I, at I, me. <laughs> right. So how do you put that or that thinking into kind of practical advice? Well, I think, advice, that, and,
5: yeah. Yeah, I think the thing that, that would help investors is, is – is the season to be reflective we're we're entering in that, and so it's a good idea to take uh, take a stock of where you're at, mm-hmm. take a look at the methodology that you use, try to understand the nature of the beast that you're dealing with understand the nature of how the market behaves, and, and understand the fact that just like a, a, a Professor Rick Nason's book, It's Not Complicated, this is really about complexity. It's not about complicated systems, it's about complexity. And complexity means that you don't have a solvable situation. You have a multi-level, multi-faceted Aspect which is called the stock market. It's not just you know Grandpa Buffett drinking his, you uh, playing his ukulele and drinking, uh, sipping his diet coke and investing long time It's also institutional investors doing completion strategies with ETFs. It's uh, risk parity programs that are going on. It is uh, algos uh, and algorithmic trading. It's a whole hodgepodge of different things that are impacting the market. So what do you do about that? Mm. Try to understand the basics. Understand the core element of what goes into valuation. And I did a little something, I posted it up on my LinkedIn page. It's a little diagram, I call it the funnel. I think it could help people understand how you at least need to understand the basics of investments and then you can kind of go from there. But at least understand that, that some of the core principles. Concepts, think in terms of concepts. As opposed to facts and opinions.
0: Well, is, is the health. point is here, Viddy, that you know the market is many different things, right? Yeah. Um, and so it's not just you know one ideology or one factor nope. at play. Um, but I do wonder increasingly the institutional money, how that often is really impacting the overall trade. I feel like in many ways the institutional trade, because of algorithms and formulas mm-hmm. out there, mathematical formulas, it often provides you know, kind of a safety net when the market goes really low because programs kick in and investors come back into the market. Same thing when it gets too heady, right? Some things get hit, some numbers get tripped, and then investors, you know, institutional investors get out of the market. But it really kind of provides almost, you know, this kind of calm way of keeping the market in check. Well, that's For better or worse.
5: For better or worse. That's one aspect of it, definitely. But here's something that perhaps the listeners can take a look into. Try and identify, try and find the risk, the, uh, excuse me, the, uh, the Ray Dalio uh, information pieces. It's up on the Internet in, in several places about risk parity. Ralph, and, I, Ray,
0: and Ray's talked to us a lot. In fact, he was part of our Bloomberg New Economy Forum this week. Right. So there's a lot of information uh, from Ray on uh, the Bloomberg Terminal and at Bloomberg.com.
5: That's right. And try and understand what risk parity is all about and And when you look at risk parity as one of the let 's call it one of the animals that are out there that that populate this jungle called the stock market, you will be shocked to see that 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 the approach has Little to nothing to do, just like, kind of like a technical analysis in a way, right. has little to nothing to do with the fundamentals of the companies. And yet, at the same time, you've got that going on while you have Warren Buffett stuff going on, while and, and his approach. While you have a whole range of these other types of of beings that are in this space that are doing all of this stock market stuff. It's complexity. It's not complicated. It's complexity, and complexity is different than complicated. Are
0: you saying retail investors you don't stand a chance? Just quickly.
5: Uh, you do if you if you focus in on your risk tolerances and your goals and your objectives, and then try to learn, try to understand what's going on, up your game, you, that type of thing, and and be reflective. Look at you know yeah. really try to be informed, not feel informed.
0: Yeah. No, no, no. That's a big distinction and certainly an important one when you're investing in the markets. All right. Got to run. Vinny, thank you so much. Be well. Have a good Thanksgiving. Vinny Catalano, Chief Market Strategist at Stuyvesant Capital Management, Global Investment Strategist at Defoe Redmount, joining us on the phone from New Jersey. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com. And be sure to check out our daily radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. We're the ones who